0: Welcome to True Enough. We are your hosts. I am Catherine Duvall.
1: And I am Brandon McCowan.
0: True Enough is a podcast about true crime, solved and unsolved notorious crimes, and unsolved mysteries. This week's podcast is about the Bridgewater Triangle. Roughly bounded by the towns of Rehoboth, Freetown, and Abington, The area includes the Hockamuck Swamp Wildlife Management Area, and the Freetown Fall River State Forest. These boundaries were first defined by cryptozoologist and folklorist Lauren Coleman, who coined the term Bridgewater Triangle in his 1970s book, Mysterious America. Other towns within this triangle include Brockton, Whitman, West Bridgewater, East Bridgewater, Bridgewater, Middleborough, Dighton, Berkeley, Raynham, Norton, Easton, Lakeville, Seaconk, and Taunton. At the center of the region is the Hockamock Swamp that was long used by the Wampanoag Indian tribe before European colonists arrived. Before them, other indigenous people are known to have lived in this area as human artifacts have been discovered that date to 9,000 years old. From about 3,000 A.D. to colonial times, Native Americans depended on the swamp as an abundant source of gain. These people revered the swamp for its bounty and used some areas for sacred burial grounds. The Wampanoag both worshipped and feared this area as the chief deity of death and disease, called Hobomock, was said to dwell in the swamp. Among many Algonquin tribes, Hobbamock was often destructive, evil, and usually in opposition to the Katanoit, the Great Creator God. The Wampanoag people named the swamp Hockamock, meaning "place where spirits dwell." Early English colonists called it Devil Swamp. The largest freshwater swamp in Massachusetts. Hockamock Swamp encompasses almost 17,000 acres spread across parts of Easton, Bridgewater, Norton, Raynham, Taunton, and West Bridgewater. In the 17th century, the swamp was used as a fortress by the Wampanoag Indians against invasion by the English settlers. During King Philip's War, it became a strategic base of operations for Chief Metacomet to launch assaults upon nearby English settlers. During the 18th and 19th centuries, Euro-American settlers deemed the swamp to be worthless and attempted to drain portions of the swamp for use as farmland. Also within the triangle is the Freetown Fall River State Forest, a large swath of forested land located at Freetown and Fall River, Massachusetts. Covering about 5,441 acres, this area was also the site of conflict between colonial settlers and the area Indians. Beginning in 1659, land was purchased from the Wapanoag Indians, and the town of Freetown was later established in 1683. Since colonial times, bizarre reports began to be told about the Triangle area, including giant snakes strange creatures, ghosts, and missing people. In more modern times, reports include people having seen Bigfoot, UFOs, ominous black helicopters, mysterious balls of light, poltergeist activity, and cattle mutilations. Early on, the forest was said to have been home to a race of diminutive humanoid creatures known as Pukwudgies. Long known in Delaware, and Wupanag Indian folklore, these troll-like creatures, generally described to be about three to four feet tall, with smooth, hairy, gray skin and large ears, have a notorious reputation for mischief and mayhem. They were once said to have been friendly to humans, but later turned against them. These evil little beings have been blamed for people who have fallen from cliffs, disappeared, or mysteriously died. In the forest, there are places that are seemingly possessed by some type of dark power. One of the most famous places is an 80-foot deep rock quarry known as Sonnet Ledge, more simply known as the Ledge. This is a scar left on the landscape by the Fall River Granite Company during the 1800s. Here, people often speak of having the compelling urge to jump off the cliff. Some reports say that some people have in fact jumped to their deaths. Other people talk of feeling a sense of dread when venturing near the ledge. It is said that visitors have seen ghosts here, and it has been an alleged hotspot for Satanists and strange cults, and some have seen UFOs. A similar site called Profile Rock also has a paranormal reputation. Located in Freetown, the 50-foot-high rock looks like a human face and the Wampanoag people have long considered the rock as sacred. According to Indian legend, the images of Wampanoag chief Massasoit, whose son died at this very place. Local legends say that Native American ghost dancers are often spied in warrior dress dancing around the rock and that the ghost of a man has been seen sitting on the rock with outstretched arms other reports tell of strange glowing orbs of light being seen and disembodied voices heard. Also known in the forest is an immense 40 ton boulder known as Dighton Rock, one of the greatest mysteries of Massachusetts. The slanted six sided boulder is approximately five feet high, nine and a half feet wide and 11 feet long. For more than 300 years, people have wondered about the lines, geometric shapes, drawings, and writing that appear on the rock and who created them. A number of speculations have been made as to who made these markings on the rock, including Native Americans, Vikings, and even Phoenicians, but their identity has never been determined. The forest has been known as a site of various cult activity, which is said to have included animal sacrifice and ritualistic murders committed by admitted Satanists. Near Freetown and Fall River, mutilated animals were found during the 1990s that were believed to have been the work of one of these cults. The density of the forest has also been used by other killers, leaving behind the remains of their victims in the remote brush and impenetrable trees and vines of Hockamuck Swamp, more strange history has occurred over the years. In addition to natural dangers such as quicksand, thorns, and sinkholes, visitors have seen ghosts, UFOs, and strange beasts throughout the years. There have been many reports of a shaggy ape-like creature seen within the swamp. This creature, probably a Bigfoot, has been described as having a terrible stench. After one of these sightings, Bridgewater residents organized expeditions to search for the Bigfoot-like creature, but they found no trace of the beast. There are others who have seen other mysterious creatures in the swamp. Some, including a law enforcement officer, have reported seeing giant black pterodactyl-like creatures with eight to 12-foot wingspans. Some say this large creature is a mythical Thunderbird, prominent in local Native American mythology. Others have reported seeing vicious red-eyed dogs and giant snakes. At Anawan Rock, named for Chief Anawan, who surrendered here to colonists ending King Philip's War, legend says that the angry spirits of Indian warriors continue to haunt the area, starting spectral fires and ghost dancing. Throughout the Bridgewater Triangle, numerous paranormal reports have been made. Mysterious glowing eyes of unseen creatures are seen in the darkness, and glowing lights hover above the trees. Native American ghosts are seen paddling canoes in the waterways. The ghost of a red-haired hitchhiker is seen along a stretch of Route 44 in Rohoboth, and another ghostly phantom appears in Hakamuk Swamp, near Route 138. The area is also a hotbed of UFO sightings. The first sighting occurred in 1760, and numerous others followed. In 1908, a UFO sighting near Bridgewater was documented in a local newspaper. In 1968, five people claimed that they saw a strange ball of light floating among the trees in a wooded part of Rehoboth. In 1976, two UFOs were seen landing along Route 44 near Taunton. In 1994, a Bridgewater law enforcement officer reported seeing a triangular-shaped craft with red and white lights. In the summer of 1999, a fast-moving UFO that was accompanied by a loud noise was reported near Lake Nipponikit. There is no explanation as to why this area has been affected by strange phenomena for so many years. Some say that the area has been cursed by Native American spirits because the land was taken from the Wapanog people. Others believe that the area emanates negative and disruptive energy because of the brutal conflict between early settlers and the Native people of the region during King Philip's War, the bloodiest war per capita in American history. By the end of the war, nearly 3,000 Wapanog men, women, and children were killed or sold onto slave ships bound for the West Indies. Some say the area is haunted by these many people who lost their lives and their lands, yet others believe that the area is a vortex or window where the laws of gravity seem not to operate in a way that is understood in the natural world.
1: Besides the counts of cryptids, there have been reported sightings of UFOs as well. This first sighting we'll discuss was actually documented in Project Blue Book, a United States Air Force study conducted between 1952 until 1969 to scientifically analyze UFO-related reports and determine if UFOs presented a threat to the United States. This documented sighting occurred on the night of March 30, 1966, in Rehoboth, Massachusetts, near the bottom left corner of the Bridgewater Triangle. This phenomenon was seen by three groups of people who were unknown to each other. The first group consisted of four teenagers, ages 17 to 19. At 8.20 p.m., while driving westward on a street in town, one of the teens recalled the group's attention to two very bright, pulsating, amber-colored lights, seemingly revolving in a horizontal position around an unseen object. They were moving very slowly from north to south. The lights maintained the same relationship to each other, indicating they were attached to an object, but the object could not be seen behind the brightness of the lights. The low flying lights passed over the road ahead of them at an undetermined distance, seemingly just clearing the telephone poles. It then stopped and hovered for several minutes just off the road. Then it became moving in a slow descent southeastward toward a wooded area. Just before it reached the top of a clump of trees about half a mile to one mile away from the observers, the lights moved slowly from a horizontal to a vertical position, brightened, then dimmed out completely. It gave this group the impression that it landed behind the trees. They assumed that if the unseamed object was at least as wide as the distance between the lights, its apparent size was compared to the size of a grapefruit at arm's length. After this sighting, the group immediately drove to the Swansea Police Department to report the UFO. However, the Swansea Police refused to take the report, informing them that they were not interested in taking a report on UFOs. So the group headed to the state police barracks in Rehoboth and filed a report there. A state trooper was actually sent out to the scene to investigate what the group reported. While the trooper didn't find anything, he stated that the youngsters appeared to be very level-headed and said that he believes they did spot some type of object. The second group to see this same phenomenon consists of five college-aged individuals. No ages were given in their report, but it indicates they each had some post-high school education or work experience. Between 8 and 8.30 p.m., on their way home from choir practice, this group was driving south along Route 118 in Rehoboth, west of the first group's location, when, as they rounded a bend in the road, they sighted a group of very bright lights hovering almost over the road just ahead of them. Their altitude was estimated to be 500 feet, and when first sighted, seemed to be about 1,000 yards from their car. As they began to close at 35 to 40 miles per hour, within 500 to 600 yards of the object, it suddenly began moving at a rapid speed, instantly from a complete standstill, it moved southwestward, disappearing behind trees. All witnesses described the UFO as two very large, brightly glowing red-orange lights, with a faint, smaller red light just below them and in the middle. One of the group members, who had the best vantage point, said she distinctly saw a very dim metallic reflection between the lights, which outlined an oval or circular object. The lights seemed to be near the bottom of the object. Another member of the group stated the two large lights were about three road apart, or about eighty to one hundred feet apart, if his estimation of distance was correct. The lights were not pulsating or revolving and always maintained the same relative position to each other. As the object sped away, it was low enough to show the treetops in front of it, which were about 800 yards away. A group member then reported this incident to the Rehoboth chief of police. The third group to see this same phenomenon is actually just one person, that we assume is older than anyone else in the other groups as he was the postmaster of Rehoboth. At around 10 p.m. that night, while watching TV at his residence, which is about four to five miles northwest of the other two groups. His wife called him to the window to see bright red flashing lights in the sky. He ran outside and saw two bright round red lights pulsating. He thought he saw a fainter steady red light located below and in the middle of the two larger lights. He thought he glimpsed another just above these two and in the middle also but was not sure. He emphasized that the two larger lights were extremely bright, big and round in shape. Although the lights were too bright to see what was carrying them, he stated that they maintained the same relative position to each other, indicating they were part of an unseamed object. The two large pulsating red lights were in a horizontal plane. Assuming the width of the object was at least the distance between the two lights, he estimated that the object itself would be the apparent size of a quarter at arm's length and much larger than the disk of a full moon. He estimated that the UFO was about a quarter mile away when he saw it from his backyard, and stated that it made a strange whistling or humming sound. This object was moving on a north-to-south course, and then swung around in a broad arc into the southwest, disappearing behind a hill one and a quarter miles away. The gentleman stated that he was familiar with airplanes and helicopters, and that this object was neither. It should be noted that this third report was not voluntarily made. While at the Rehoboth post office, this postmaster had stated a version of this account while defending the four teenagers' account the report from the first group and someone reported his words to the press where they became publicized. Project Blue Book's official conclusion of their investigation into this incident states, quote, during the time of the sighting there was aircraft in the area. Investigating officer feels that the aircraft landing lights were the cause of the sighting, unquote. NICAP, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, a nonprofit research group which studied UFOs, would later conduct their own audit of Project Blue Book's investigation and found otherwise. In their evaluation, they state, quote, Each group was entirely independent and unknown to each other. The characteristic bright pulsating red lights, oval configuration, ability to hover and dart away from a standstill, and the humming or whistling sound are all genuine characteristics of the true UFO. I know of no natural phenomenon that would account for this sighting. The unusual characteristics coupled with the absence of conventional aircraft identification lights rule out aircraft. My evaluation is that the object sighted definitely falls into the category of an unknown object. While not as extensively documented as the Project Blue Book sighting, the Bridgewater Triangle has played host to several UFO sightings over the years. One as far back as 1908 in West Bridgewater, Massachusetts, when on Halloween morning, two undertakers riding by carriage caught sight of a light in the sky, which they compared to a lantern. They watched as the light dropped, rose, and moved around in a circle. Many local citizens saw the same. While hot air balloon travel was popular, and aircraft still very much in the era of the Wright brothers, a local newspaper noted about this sighting, the balloon appears capable of speed and directness of travel, which are out of the ordinary, and suggests that it might have been fitted with a power-driven fan or propeller but none who have seen it ever heard any sound indicating the presence of machinery. While many locals at the time passed it off as just another hot air balloon, one of the two gentlemen strongly disagreed, quote, I claim that a hot air balloon could not move in a circle or perpendicular, as this one did. Several reputable citizens of the town have since told me that they also saw it, and they are also sure that it was not a hot air balloon. I have seen many hot air balloons, and I am positive that this was not one of that type, unquote. In 1973, Again in Rehoboth, customers at Joseph's, a local restaurant, believe they were visited by UFO when one night, after a short loss of power, two large perfect circles were found imprinted in dirt behind the restaurant. Apparently, every January, there is the appearance of spook lights. These balls of light appear over the railroad tracks near the random dog track and through Hakamok Swamp. But one more incident of mention is one that took place on the clear spring night of March 23rd, 1979, near West Bridgewater, Massachusetts. Two reporters for local radio station, WHDH, Jerry Lopes and Steve Spragia were driving on their way to the random dog track and had just come onto Route 106 West, which runs along the northern edge of Hockamock Swamp. Steve then noticed a bright light over a tree line that was coming closer and closer. While at a stoplight, they were able to get a better look. A line of cars, each with their own occupants, were looking up at the sky and doing the same. The two reporters judged that the light was about two miles away at most. Still, it kept approaching. Eventually, it swept over the line of cars. Steve Spragio would later on recall that, quote, I almost felt like I could throw a rock at the thing. It seemed that close to me, unquote. Per their descriptions, the craft blotted out the stars above in the shape of a long baseball diamond. The port and starboard edges of the craft each had a row of red lights, while the aft was lined by white lights. The front of the craft ended in a point where a bright white searchlight was located, which shined downward in a triangular beam. Jerry Lopes, who had served in the United States Air Force previously, recalled that the craft produced no noise. That's not one of ours, he told his colleague, while the craft passed overhead. After hovering for a minute, the craft then took off into the night sky. Lopes and Sprasia disagree on the size of the craft. Lopes would say it appeared about the size of a C 130 cargo plane, while Sprasia attests that it was the size of about five 747 passenger planes put wing to wing. It must be noted that up until this incident, both Lopes and Sprasia considered themselves 100% skeptics of UFO phenomenon. They reluctantly came forward with their account after, in the weeks following, a series of UFO sightings describing the same craft made the local newspapers. Both reporters went on to successful careers in the news industry, Spraja as a prominent reporter in the Boston metro area and later on in Raleigh, North Carolina. Lopes went on to become a news director of a broadcasting network in Washington, D.C. Both would never forget that one clear night back in March of 1979. As Steve Spraja stated recently, I keep looking up, because even to this day as I look up, I can imagine, I can see the darn thing. It made that much of an impression on me.
0: Lake Nipponicket, or the NIP for short, is 354 acres. The NIP straddles Bridgewater and Raynham, and is located on the boundary line of Plymouth and Bristol counties. Cryptic creatures, spectral fires, Native American ghosts, UFOs, and other unusual sightings have all been seen here at the NIP a body of water that holds a mysterious history of accidents and drownings. For decades, this lake has held the reputation of stealing the lives of people too young to die with an average depth of a mere three feet and just six feet at its deepest point. The Nip's morbid history of drowning certainly is one of the Nip's biggest mysteries. It seems as though Lake Nipponikit is a place where anything can happen. The skies over the Nip are a favorite hangout for UFOs, and those same strange skies over the lake have rained frogs on at least one occasion. In the 1920s, one local paper reported that Lake Nipponikit had snakes so large they were eating the trout. In the summer of 2012, huge alien-looking blobs mysteriously invaded the dark waters of Lake Nipponikit. Some as large as four feet. The strange jellyfish looking organisms turned out to be a strange and little known about species that is millions of years old, having survived the ice age called bryozoans. Bryozoans are typically found in the Arctic Ocean, but this particular breed is found in fresh water with tentacles, a mouth, and reproductive organs, these creatures are one of Earth's most bizarre creatures. That they would make an appearance here, at the NIP, is not that much of a stretch of the imagination. One evening in the summer of 1990, a Boston youth lost control of his jet ski and lost his life. In February of 1991, an Abington man inexplicably walked far out onto the ice and fell through a thin patch and drowned. In May of 1991, an eight-year-old Brockton boy who was swimming near the state boat ramp went under in a pocket of deep water and did not come up. For the second year in a row, canoers on the NIP have come into distress and had to call the police or locals for help. No one has drowned yet this year. It has been said that there is a remarkable amount of crime within the triangle. From cult activity and murders to the New Bedford Highway Killer, the triangle does have its share of activity. It has been reported that there were a large amount of animal remains found during the 1980s and 1990s. A great deal of graffiti in the Freetown State Forest is said to be cult related. In 1990, a grave was dug up from an old cemetery deep within the forest. It was the second time this particular grave had been dug up. The first was a year prior when the body of Elizabeth Gregory, who died in 1868, was removed. The body has never been found, nor have the people responsible. In 1991, a teenager cut his leg and wrote the Our Father backwards and upside down on a small piece of poster board in his own blood. He then walked it to St. Bernard Church on Main Street and removed the baby Jesus in its place. He left a pile of bones. Also in 1991, four teens drove out to the Asanet burial ground and entered the Robert Wyatt Mausoleum. They removed the head of Angie Littlefield, and took it with them. The head was recovered, having been tossed out the window of the teen's vehicle, and the teens were caught and charged with several crimes. In November of 1988, a hunter came across a hidden fort inside the state forest. It could only be seen if approached from a certain angle. Inside the fort were dolls with their eyes gouged out, and children's clothing scattered and stained. None of this was ever linked to a specific crime, but it's still disturbing. In 1998, there were two instances of animal mutilation in the forest. In April, a dozen calves were found mutilated, and in October of that same year, the remains of a headless cow was found in the same spot. Doreen Ann Levesque, Carl Drew, Andy Malteus, and Robert Murphy are all names the locals know well in the Freetown area. They have appeared in papers since 1979. Doreen Ann Levesque's body was found on October 13, 1979, underneath the bleachers of the Diamond Regional Vocational High School. The list of suspects was long, but predictable. Doreen had been a prostitute, so the investigation was focused on her pimp, Carl Drew. Drew was a street kid who had a reputation for violent behavior and running his ladies with a fist. One of the first people to offer information about the murder was Andy Malteus. He was in contact with several prostitutes who had information about the murder. The focus of the investigation then shifted to Malteus when Barbara Raposa, his girlfriend, also turned up dead a few months later. There were apparent similarities for both murders. Both women had been bound and had been killed by having their heads crushed with heavy rocks. Malteus offered some other information as well. He offered a woman by the name of Karen Marsden, also an employee of Carl Drew's. She claimed that Drew had killed Levesque and was going to kill her for speaking to the police. Though her career of drug use made her less than a reliable witness to the police, they still took her claim seriously and encouraged her to provide any information she might have regarding Barbara Raposa's murder as well. Robin Murphy was introduced to the police by Malteus as well. She was also a prostitute. According to Marsden, Murphy had driven her to the Freetown State Forest and had threatened her life. Murphy claimed to be a part of a cult practicing in the area. According to the police, Karen was not only frightened of Murphy, but was also terrified of Carl Drew as well. Malteus was eventually arrested and convicted for the murder of his girlfriend. The major witness to the crime was Murphy, who claimed that Malteus had killed Barbara Raposa because she cheated on him. After Karen Marsden turned up dead, Murphy claimed that she helped Carl Drew with killing her to get her to remain silent about the Lebesque murder. Drew was convicted of the murder of Karen Marsden. Murphy was offered a lighter sentence if she would testify against Carl Drew. According to witnesses, Carl Drew was a Satanist who ran a cult. Most of their rituals were performed in the state forest. Working on information gathered by one witness, the police were able to find a makeshift shack in the woods where the group had prepared for their ceremonies. It was supposedly the site of orgies and preparations, although the murder of animals and other victims were always done a distance away from the house. Police were never able to link any evidence from the shack to any of the murders. The names and the stories are still remembered in Freetown. The paper resurrects them every once in a while, but there is still something else. It's not just the hidden shack or the mental markers where the crimes were said to have happened. They can hear it in the trees of the forest, like something calling out to be recalled. And they are unsure if it is the voices of the dead or something evil in the woods, calling the devil back home. James Cater's journey to Freetown began in 1968 with the assault and attempted rape of a young girl from North Andover. Though Cater was convicted of the crime and sentenced to 15 to 20 years in prison, he was released just after serving six and a half years. Likely, that would have been the last we would have heard about Cater, except that assault on the North Andover teen resulted in cater tying the girl to a tree and leaving her. In November of 1978, two years after his release, another body was found in the Freetown State Forest. A young girl was found by two boys a hundred yards off Coppicate Road, near a fork from the main path. She was found fully clothed, tied to an oak tree by her neck, with her hands bound behind her back. To the police, the crimes were almost identical. Forensic specialists determined that she had been tied to the tree while still alive and died from asphyxiation because of the way she was bound. The body was that of 15 year old cheerleader Mary Lou Arruda, a sophomore in high school from Raynham who had gone missing that September. Cater was identified as a suspect early on and brought in for questioning. Cater claimed to be getting married the following day and that he had spent the day Mary Lou was abducted running errands, yet no store could validate his claim. Witnesses reported to have seen Cater's car near the abduction site, and a sketch drawn by a witness matched Cater's general description. When police searched Cater's car, they found several Boston Globe articles highlighting the kidnapping and unusual markings on his tires matching ones found at the scene. Both the North Andover girl and Mary Lou Arruda were abducted while walking their bikes near their homes, and both girls were tied similarly. Cater was arrested at his home in late November in 1978. Cater was tried and found guilty of murder and kidnapping in the first degree. A few years later, his conviction was overturned, as was another in 1985. In 1992, he was retried, and that trial ended in a mistrial. In 1996, at Cater's fourth trial, his first victim testified as her ordeal offered a link to Mary Lou Aruda's murder. On December 23rd, 1996, Cater was finally convicted and sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. His conviction was upheld upon appeal in 2000. The official total of the number of victims from the New Bedford Highway killer is 11, but the actual number may be much higher. The first woman found off of Route 140 in Freetown was Deborah Medeiros, a prostitute and drug dealer. She was found in the summer of 1988. Her body was found without underwear, and it appeared that she had been strangled with her own bra. The body was in a state of decomposition as it had apparently been dumped there months prior. Over the next few months, more women began to disappear in the area and more bodies began showing up on the side of highways in Bristol County. The murders appeared somewhat similar, but a stronger connection was the fact that all of these women were prostitutes with drug habits who were known to work in the New Bedford area. Bodies were found throughout that winter, while the number of dead were allowing the police to make connections between the killings, the killer remained hidden. The bodies were found in different towns, and sharing information was sparse during that time. Additionally, any witnesses or people with vital information were on the wrong side of the law, and in most cases, not willing to talk. Only a few suspects were ever considered. One... Tony Grazia was known to pick up prostitutes and beat them. Even after becoming close with a beautiful young girl from the area, Grazia was known to still troll the streets, looking for prostitutes. In July of 1991, Tony killed himself. A lull in the victims followed his death and solidified the idea that he was likely the one responsible for the killings. How many bodies are buried in the woods from native Americans to cults to serial killers? We will likely never know. The one thing we do know is that many souls will never rest in the Freetown state forest.
1: So this is our special October Halloween episode with a slightly paranormal theme about the Bridgewater Triangle. Yes, it is. And, uh, in researching this, it was what I found Kate to be was a little bit more difficult to research in comparison to let's say true crime.
0: There's a lot there because it's a huge area. It's a great number of towns and there's a lot of different activity. Everything from the paranormal to crime to UFOs—it's a lot of material to go over.
1: It's different than investigating or researching one incident, like a murder or something like that. Yeah, it's a—it's an investigation to a phenomenon uh, compared to uh, a singular, isolated point in time. Yes. So it was—it was hard. It was—it was—it was challenging to to look into this. Um, what I feel about the Bridgewater Triangle is. I wonder if it's a little bit of marketing, a little bit of, I wouldn't say it's hype, but I do think that the name begot some attention after it was coined and it's coined based upon the Bermuda Triangle, which also has its own mystique because of the name. And looking into it, do we find the preponderance of supernatural or paranormal occurrences? happening in this region of the Bridgewater Triangle because that's the area, that's the type of area that it is, or do we find it because it was given that name? I wonder. I think, um, in any state across this country, if you dig deep enough, you'll find ghost stories, stories about, um, supernatural creatures, stories about UFOs or aliens, things that can't be explained easily. And and if you if you bunch those together and into something, then then yeah, you're gonna you're, you're gonna make a
0: a creepy space. You're gonna make a
1: creepy space. You're gonna yeah, exactly. You're going to make, make a creepy zone. You're gonna make a right. a region where these things happen. Right. And now, what do you got to do with it? You got to give it a name.
0: You give it the name of the Bridgewater Triangle.
1: Which, when I say this, I don't mean to dispel or try to debunk any of these things that have happened. I do think that some of them, of course, they can't all have, all be true. You can't, I, I, I was, I'm i half a skeptic when it, when it comes to this, <laughs> as the poster says in the X-Files, I want to believe.
0: I agree. I agree. I mean, frankly, a, a lot of this can be explained away to nature. Um, it is the red eyes in the forest. Those are animals. It doesn't mean there's a devilish creature there. It's just a wild animal. They happen in nature. You know, the every set of eyes that you see in the forest isn't the devil's dog or whatever. Uh, I'm, I, I am, I agree with you. I very much want to believe as well, but I found I very much couldn't believe in the majority of things that happen there. I, the two of us have watched uh, numerous uh, shows that contain EVPs about specific areas, and in my opinion, almost all of them. You can't hear anything until someone says, "Hey, that sounded like it said, "Get out yeah, or whatever word, yeah. yes you 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 then all of a sudden, oh my God, I can hear too. you know to me, that is just it's it's the power of suggestion
1: confirmation bias, yes, yeah,
0: I think a great deal of these reports are building off of fear and hysteria. Um, of the area. Once one person has seen something or heard something or smelled something, it's all of a sudden, you know, Oh my God, I saw that too. And this is what I saw too. I saw a flying witch on a broom. Oh my God. All of a sudden you have another witch trials in your hands. I mean, that that's how they started to begin with. Oddly enough, in the same area. Yes. You yes. know, um, for me, as far as criminals hiding bodies and leaving bodies in the woods, yes, those things did happen. Uh, No doubt about it. Bodies were found. A lot of them. For me, I think that bodies were hidden in, you know, the Freetown State Forest, A, because it's a very thick forest. Uh, Same thing with the Hockamock Swamp. Very thick area. A lot
1: of uh, dense vegetation. largest freshwater swamp in North America.
0: Yes. um, Makes, you know, that the perfect area to dump a body or whatever. People aren't Trolling through there, and the fact that it has been made out to be haunted or creepy or full of ghosts, yeah, families go through Freetown as well. Families go through, you know, during the day, and so forth. Um, at night, not so much. If you're a criminal looking to dump something, that's the perfect place to go. Uh, I think any any area that has that mystique to it already is going to be a prime area for a criminal to. Get rid of evidence or leave bodies or whatever. I mean, let, let's face it. The, it's already creepy. Let's add some other stuff to it. It just happens to be that in this triangle that these things have happened.
1: Here's the next jump from that. I think because people die there, or people have been murdered there, and the bodies have been left there. The next thing is, well, this place is probably haunted, right? Do you think people think that?
0: I I do think people think that. I mean, people think that because a lot of Native Americans were were killed there. And um, there was at least one story about some Civil War soldiers that were killed in that swamp um, and so forth. But frankly, you you can't set foot anywhere in Massachusetts that hasn't had a bunch of soldiers die on it or Native Americans. It's Massachusetts. Of course, there has been strife pretty much anywhere across America. You have had issues with death and, and whatever. Anywhere you step, someone's probably died on it. Doesn't mean it's haunted.
1: So in regards to the UFO phenomenon, looking into it, the the instance that we cover in this episode, I feel it, it can't be easily explained by science that we know of right now. So I do feel that the people involved in these instances believe what they saw and can't explain it. And from their accounts what objectively they can't be explained, uh, fully.
0: I would agree with that. I mean, there are some things in, I mean, we have both seen and read a little bit about Skinwalker Ranch and, uh, some, some other, uh, you know, interesting occurrences. Um, and there are definitely things that just cannot be explained. And some of those have happened in. This area, in the area of the, of the Bridgewater Triangle, we're, we're in no way, shape or form denying that. Some weird occurrences have happened. I don't think the area is cursed. I think that people have made it what it is because of the hype and people have flocked there to try to see something paranormal or to try to see a UFO. And when they see any light or shape or eyes or hear a noise, it is immediately reported as paranormal or UFO or, Oh my God, there's haunted Indians in a canoe. Um, you know, it, I don't, I don't necessarily think that that's what it is.
1: It's kind of interesting because before this you and I, in regards to the paranormal or the supernatural, we would sort of lean into that stuff.
0: Yes. And, very much.
1: And, and looking into it, into the Bridgewater Triangle, trying to figure out who said this when did it happen were the other accounts of it nailing down where exactly the information came from it was very 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 hard
0: yes i agree it was very difficult to find definitive who said what when and from that it kind of made me into a non-believer because till we did the research on this I always just took everything at face value and thought, oh man, that's really creepy. Yeah, you it, know? It's,
1: it's like the, the, the a mass effect of, there's been so many accounts. Right, it must be true. It must be something happening.
0: There. Right, and in looking into it, I, there's a lot that I couldn't validate. There's, I mean, Bigfoot, really? Everybody <laughs> yeah, to, a, I ev- believe in Bigfoot. <laughs> I, everybody today has a cell phone. I'm sorry, is he hiding in a cave somewhere? Why have people not been able to get more definitive video and a clearer picture on him? Everyone has a has a camera on their phone. I mean, really? It doesn't make sense to me. I don't think that Bigfoot retired and has, <laughs> and is maybe in like Florida or something. And maybe he shaved. I don't know. I don't, I don't think that that's the case. But since everyone has a camera, why has there not been more footage about him? I, I don't. I don't know where he could have gone.
1: Right. I do believe in the concept of Bigfoot. I believe in the concept of creatures that uh, cannot be fully accounted for by, uh, normal, people by normal,
0: normal people who make sense. Normal people make sense, or by <laughs> by science,
1: by biology.
0: Well, and I uh, mean frankly, I I believe in UFOs. To say that we are the only people in this universe is absurd. Of course, there are other things in this universe that are considered living, whether there are, is definitive proof that there are other beings out there that we have yet to see. I'm sure that there is, although every time we try to research something, I run across like a dead end that is, hey, it's just lights or whatever. I mean, cool. I, I guess what I'm trying to say, listeners, is, Give me a body or a video, and I would be completely satisfied with that.
1: And please don't post it on ufodiscoveryzone.net.3. dot net dot three. Please post it. Go to ABC, CBS, NBC, someplace,
0: someplace legitimate. Yes. Yeah. So, so, I mean, listeners, I think
1: we we came in very excited, and we left underwhelmed. Underwhelmed, but. I do think that certain things happen that cannot be explained by modern science. I agree. At Bridgewater Triangle. I agree. In that region.
0: And there, I mean, there were, there were crimes that happened there. No doubt.
1: Those very few instances that we can, we can say that we believe occurred. That's true enough for us.
0: I believe some parts of this are true enough. The curse. I I don't think the area is cursed. Do I believe that any of these things are true enough. Some. Uh I mean I think they're UFOs. The paranormal ones, eh. I mean a lot of people have seen orbs, which frankly, I've seen the footage. It's dust. Don't get me
1: started on orbs. It's
0: dust or bugs. I mean really I go for
1: bigfoot. I can't go for orbs.
0: Right? I, I I'm I'm with you. a lot of the footage you if you watch video footage about uh With people who are filming and things like that, they are hearing stuff in the trees, and I'm doing air quotes. I apologize, listeners. They're hearing things in the trees. I can tell you with complete certainty, it's two trees rubbing together. It's a deer. <laughs> or a deer or some sort of animal. It's in the middle of the night. You can't see. You know, this is what happens. But uh, I, I do think, you know, strange things are seen in places. So that, to me, is true enough. Is the area cursed? Absolutely not.
1: But it's true enough that in this certain place, 200 square miles, it was given a name at one point of the Bridgewater Triangle.
0: That is true enough.
1: This ends this episode of True Enough. This episode was produced, written, and edited by your co-hosts, Catherine Duvall and Brandon McCowan. Thanks go out to our sources, which are listed in our show notes. All music was provided by Anchor.fm. True Enough is created by us and distributed through Anchor. You can find us on Anchor at anchor.fm slash true enough. From there, you can message us, or you can now email us at trueenoughnation at gmail.com. So please send us your questions, thoughts, opinions, and hate mail about any of our episodes. Also, please subscribe to us in whichever podcast app you like so you don't miss our next episode where we try to determine what is true enough to be believed.